Well, we come this morning to the book of Zechariah. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn toward the, uh, the New Testament, as it were, and then go back a few pages and you'll find Zechariah, one of the last of the uh, 12, uh, the minor prophets found at the end of the Old Testament. If you don't have a handout, please raise your hand. There are handouts uh, to help you so you can follow along if anybody needs one. Right. If you look at your notes there, you'll note that as we come to this section, again, we come to one of the three post-exilic prophets, three prophets that prophesied among the people of God uh, after they had returned from captivity. And so we have Haggai, we've looked at him already this morning, we have Zechariah, and then Lord willing, we'll come to Malachi. Haggai and Zechariah were concerned about the spiritual and religious reformation of the people of God. They, they, they were uh, active in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, or around that same time period, in order to encourage the people and help them to accomplish their work. So the temple plays a significant role in, uh, in uh, Haggai as well as in Zechariah because that was the work that they were engaged in doing. And we can immediately kind of, as our minds, as you read through books like Haggai and Zechariah, should be thinking of the new covenant temple, uh, the church, and the work to build the new covenant temple as something of the parallel uh, as we draw applications from these Old Testament books uh, going forward to our time and to, our, to each of us. Haggai uh, was, uh, was something like uh, uh, the old brownie camera that my dad let me use once. It was a black and white camera, film camera, and uh, took four snapshots. But uh, Haggai is like Ansel Adams, if you've ever seen some of his posters. He can capture a whole story in, a, in one black and white photo. And Haggai had these four sermons that are like four black and white photos that capture specific uh, realities. The worldliness of the people of God and how they need to repent. The importance of the fact of the work that they have to do and that God would be with them in that work. And that it was a work which was far greater than any Thing their eyes could actually presently see. The glory of the temple would eventually be uh, far greater than anything that any man had ever seen to date. And those are captured in those four messages. We come to Zechariah and we come to a very different kind of person and a very different kind of book. Zechariah is more like uh, HD, uh, um, IMAX theater-like uh, uh, presentations. The, the, the pictures are, are graphic and they, and, they, and they carry us along in, in, in these multicolored, multifaceted images. And uh, all the way through, even though there's only these visions in the first half of the book, even the picturesque language that he uses in the second half of the book continue to present the truth in that kind of a graphic way. And so, as one man put it, Haggai was practical and uh, Zechariah was visionary. Uh, that is, he used lots of visions. So as we come now to the introduction that you have there in front of you, uh, having looked at those various uh, introductory comments. We have the author. Who wrote Zechariah? Well, it was Zechariah, just as we read in the very first verse of the, very, of the first chapter, in the eighth month of the second year of 
Darius, the word of Yahweh, came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying. And so we have this man who is a prophet. He's a prophet of God, and he's, and he's come to speak on behalf of Yahweh, uh, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of the Old Testament. But he's also a priest. If, if you have your Bible, you look back at Nehemiah chapter 12. I don't think you can get there as quickly as I can because it's in my notes. But uh, Nehemiah chapter 12 and verse 12, we read, Now in the days of Jehoiakim, the priests, the heads of the father's households were, and then he starts listing the heads of the priestly household, Zariah, or excuse me, Sariah, Mariah of Jeremiah, Hananiah, and then down in verse 16 of Ido, that's the grandfather of Zechariah, Zechariah. So he is the descendant from Ido. And so he is part of the priestly line. And so it's again, it's, a, it's understandable then why he would have so much emphasis on the temple. He's got a, 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 a personal interest, if you will, in the very role that he fills in the very line that, into which he was born. So he's born into the line of the Levites. And he's there to, uh, and, speaks, uh, and, and speaks on behalf of God for the advancement of the, the temple, the, the temple work. So when we look at his family line and look at his name, you, know, you, could, you could find, as several of, of the men mentioned that I was reading, uh, there are over 25 or 20, possibly 25 or 26 different Zechariahs in the Bible. Uh, but this one is the son of Berechiah, the, son of, the grandson of Ido, a priest who led the Levites, that is, Ido did in Nehemiah, Nehemiah's day and Ezra's day. Now, the names are all interesting because Berechiah means uh, Yah, Yah or Yahweh blesses, and Ido means an appointed time, and Zechariah, Yah remembers. And all of those names, in some sense, play an important role, if you will, uh, can give us an idea as to what uh, the book of Zechariah is about. It's, it's about the fact that Yahweh is going to bless his people. It's about the, the, the fact that there is a pointed time when these things are going to take place. And Zechariah is trying to get them to look beyond what they're seeing and experiencing. And, of course, his own name, Yahweh remembers, uh, is extremely important uh, for the people of God as they come, uh, as, he, as they hear his message. He wants them to remember that Yahweh knows what they're going through. We look at the setting then of this book. When was Zechariah written or given? I can't really tell you when it was written. There's no information to tell us that. But when was it given? Well, we have very specific information. Again, we looked at this last week in, under Haggai. The same passage that mentions Haggai in Ezra also mentions uh, Zechariah in Ze Ezra chapter 4, verse 24, where the work had ceased. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 speaks about God sending Haggai and Zechariah as preachers, as prophets to come and to encourage the people and strengthen the hands of the people in this labor that they had before them of building the temple. Like Haggai, Zechariah's ministries uh, are dated. Some of them are very clearly dated. Notice again, I read chapter 1 and verse 1. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius. Now you have a chart there in your notes, which I found actually, I, I thought, okay, I found it in a book by Dillard and Longman, uh, page 429. You see that in your handout. But it turns out this chart appears in, in, in numerous books. And I realized I could have just said, 
I didn't have to necessarily footnote it because it was, it's, it's found all over the place, the same information. But Haggai uh, starts with uh, the second year of the sixth month of the first day, uh, on the first day in the, year of, the second year of, of Darius. And then again at the, in chapter 1, verse 15 of Haggai. Then he moves to the seventh month, about a month later in chapter 2, uh, when he describes the glory of the temple. And then we come to, chapter, to, the, the, to the second year, the eighth month, and that's when Zechariah begins. So it's about two months after uh, Haggai had begun his ministry. Zechariah, uh, Zechariah excuse me, can put the two of them together. <laughs> Zechariah uh, comes on the scene and he begins to proclaim his messages. And then we see that about three months later, a couple lines down there, in the second year, in the 11th month, he's going to have his first night vision. That's going to be found in the middle of uh, chapter 1 of Zechariah. And then, and then chapters 9 to 14, there's a reference to Greece in chapter 9, verse 13, but there's no markers of a specific time frame as to when those messages were given. So we do see then that he's coming along at the same time. And as I made the comment last time, God has many different instruments by which he gives his words to his people. They are his words. And I think I used this illustration, but I'll use it again. Imagine uh, a master instrument builder who's also a master conductor and a master composer. Uh, and, and he builds different instruments from different kinds of wood with different material to make the different strings and the different bows that he's going to use to, to play those instruments. And he builds one that's a cello and one that's a violin and one that's a viola, but they're all slightly different. And he writes the music to be played on these, and he plays specifically on each one of them because he's a master uh, musician as well. He plays the specific tune on the one that he wants. Now, it's his music, completely his music, but it comes out differently from each instrument that he plays. And in a similar way, the, the Word of God is God's Word to us. And, and it comes to us through his agents, the prophets. And he doesn't bypass the prophets, but he carries them along by his spirit. And using their personalities and their various skills and areas, he, he brings his word to us through those agents. But beyond that, we have to recognize he made the agents exactly the way that he wanted them to be. So that they would play the tune exactly the way he wanted it to sound. And yet... He's not just dictating to them, for we are free agents in the sovereign purposes of God, and he uses them to give us his message. So we can be very confident that this is God's word. It says it over and over again. Yahweh came to Zechariah. Yahweh was very angry. Yahweh of hosts said, and, or declares, or thus saith the Lord. So we have all these statements. This is clearly God's word, but it's coming to us through his servant Zechariah in a form which is familiar or, or shaped by the character of Zechariah. Now, to whom was it written? Well, it was written to the first wave of Jews that came back. Again, there it is there in, in Ezra. It's written to Zerubbabel uh, in chapter 4. He's specifically addressed. It's the only place that Zerubbabel's name appears is chapter 4. 
appears four times. He's never called the governor. He's never called the son of Shealtiel. He's just called Zerubbabel. And we're supposed to know who he is. Uh, certainly his, Zerubbabel knew who he was. And then there's Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, who is specifically identified as the high priest. And he is identified in particular in chapter 3. We'll come to that when we get there and mentioned one other time in chapter 6. And so these are the people to whom he's writing. So we come to this book. We have this prophet who is a priest. We have a time frame in which the, the building of the temple was supposed to be going on. It had stopped. And he and Haggai come along and begin to speak to the people. Haggai begins the work. And the people listen and respond and go back to do the work. And then Zechariah comes alongside of him and begins his message in preaching as well. And preaching to the people that have come back from captivity, the small group, the remnant that's come back, and to their leaders, their civil leader, Zerubbabel, and their religious leader, Joshua. Now we come thirdly to the purposes and why was Zechariah written. Now, uh, I recognize we haven't read the book yet, uh, and it was pointed out to me, sometimes it's a little bit confusing. We haven't read through the book yet, and here I'm telling you what's in the book. Well, think of this as kind of a, a, a trailer, if you will. And there's these little scenes I'm going to give you right now that you say, when you come to see the whole movie, you'll be looking for these scenes. Only, and I'm not going to give them to you necessarily in the order that they appear. I'm just going to give you some of the basic thoughts, and I want you to think about that as we go through this, so you're prepared for what you're looking for. If you were a Jew and you were picking up the book of Zechariah shortly at the, after the time that he had written it, you'd be asking the question, what is the purpose of this book to me? Why do I have this book? What value is it to me? Well, the historical purpose, that is the purpose to those Jews of that time and the Jews that followed. It's a complementary message alongside of Haggai. And as one man put it, Haggai tells them to restart the work and Zechariah tells them, complete the work. And I was thinking as I came here this morning of that familiar saying to us, many start well, and I'm going to change it just slightly than I'm used to hearing it, fewer finish well. And they started well, and then they stopped. They were discouraged, they were disappointed, they were distracted, they were dangerously dull. And so God comes, sends along his instrument, Haggai, to say, get started, get your hands busy, do the work. And a compliment to his ministry is Zechariah, who comes along, and we will be reading how he said, now listen, keep going with the work, don't stop. One of his messages comes in about two years after they've begun the work and building on the temple, and so it's probably already taken some shape, and he's saying, keep going. So he wants to encourage the remnant to, to complete the building. But he has, also has another uh, message, and that you see there in your notes. It's especially found in, in chapter 1. If you look at, at chapter 1 briefly, notice what it says in verse 2 and 3. Yahweh was very angry with your fathers. This is the message that Zechariah is given to give to the people. Yahweh was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, that is, Zechariah, say to the people you're, men, you're speaking to, thus says Yahweh of hosts, return to me, declares Yahweh of hosts, that I may return to you, says Yahweh of hosts. Verse 4, do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, 
And in verse 5, he's going to mention the prophets again. And in verse 6, he's going to mention my servants, the prophets. So he's reminding them of what the prophets had already said and how the people had responded. Just like we saw in some of the other prophets, Zechariah is going to use redemptive history and say, let's learn some lessons from history. Now, if you were like me when I was growing up and you don't like history, you say, oh, history's so boring. And all these dates and facts and figures, and uh, I, just, I just had no interest in history whatsoever growing up. Until somebody gave me that, just that simple little saying, and you know what it is, right? It's his story. And history is the unfolding of God's purposes for his world, and in particular, for his people. And all that he's doing in the, in the created order is ultimately for his glory, but it's his glory through his church, through his people. And so he's ordering all the affairs of the world. And sometimes we go, well, I don't understand why he's allowing Putin to do this and Xi Jinping to do that. I have no idea. But somehow God is working all of that for his glory in accomplishing his purposes among his people. Whether it's to challenge his church to, be, to persevere or whether it's to give them blessings to see if they'll continue faithful to him or forget him or whatever it might be. So here, the writer Zechariah says, remember what the people did when they heard the former prophets speaking. And let's learn from them. Well, there's a number of doctrinal purposes, and I'm just going to scan over them. I'm not going to spend a lot of time getting in detail here. Uh, I don't want to lose you right at the outset, but some, what do we learn? Some of the doctrine that we learn as we come through this, what you, can you be looking for? Well, of course, the centrality of the temple and corporate worship uh, in, the, in the reformation and the preservation of his people, the spiritual restoration of his people. We're going to see the providence of God in bringing back his people to the land and, and in caring for them and how he protects them and how he's going to continue to protect them. Uh, Zechariah is a book that gives a lot of preeminence and prominence to the, the Messiah in the future spiritual restoration of the old uh, of the people of Israel. It's a book in which we have a good bit of, of eschatology, study of last things, uh, and that's part of one of the challenges of the book. What's he talking about? Is he talking about something that already happened? Is he talking to some, about something that's happening? Is he talking about something that's going to happen? And sometimes the answer is yes. He did this, he's doing this, and he's going to do it. We read about the salvation of Israel, particularly by the shepherd king who was first rejected and smitten. We'll come back to that in the Christological purposes, in the regathering and restoration of Israel after the nation waged war against Jews only to be conquered by God. That is, when these enemies come in, we're going to learn about how God says, you know what, I'm going to use these enemies to accomplish my purposes with my people, but then I'm going to judge them. Nobody's getting away with anything. And a whole new world order under the king, the king of, that God appoints. Christological purposes, uh, several men mentioned that Zechariah has more to say about Messiah than any other Old Testament book except Isaiah, which is pretty impressive for a book that's only 14 chapters long. But there are just numerous allusions and quotes from, from Zechariah. And here's just a few of them. Let me just highlight them for you. In chapter 3, verse 1, Christ is seen as the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is, the angel of Yahweh is Yahweh. And we see that coming out in, in chapter 3 as he speaks and he speaks as Yahweh. 
We have Christ the branch in chapter 3 and verse 8. Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed they are men who are a symbol. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant the branch. The Nazar, which is probably uh, one of the places where we get Nazarene uh, when, we, when we hear that Jesus is a Nazarene or from Nazareth. Uh, he, is, he is the righteous branch. He, is, he has come on a low, uh, lowly and humble station, comes riding on a donkey, and that's quoted at the triumphal entry. He, he serves as a shepherd, chapter 10 and verse 1. Uh, the, the Messiah is rejected and betrayed, and this is pictured in uh, a drama worked out by, by Zechariah, or lived out by Zechariah. Christ is the crucified Savior. He's pierced and struck down. They will look upon him whom they pierced. We'll come back to that. We were going to see a picture of him returning in glory to deliver Israel from her enemies. And so he comes once and he'll come again. He's going to come in glory. And then the rule of the king of, in, the king of peace or the prince of peace, we could say, uh, in righteousness in Jerusalem. And then establishment of a new world order under this messianic king. Those are some of the references to Christ. Now, I just give you those as kind of, again, highlights to whet your appetite as you read the book of Zechariah. Uh, don't ever be afraid to read these Old Testament prophets with your New Testament glasses on. Now, granted, we need to understand the time period in which they wrote, right, and understand how they expressed it. But we have the completed revelation, which is just a continuing revelation, a continuing, expanding, opening revelation. So we should come to this and say, okay, I ought to expect to see things that remind me of Jesus Christ. Redemption that looks like Christ. Deliverance that looks like Christ. Service and leadership that looks like Jesus. And we see that over and over again in Zechariah. And we have some help because the New Testament many times quotes Zechariah to help us in doing that. But now look at your outline. If you flip your sheet over, you've got your, an outline on the back. And outline's a little bit different than I've done in other outlines. Really, there's, uh, there, you could... You could say there's really only two sections in this book. Uh, some go from chapter 1 uh, to chapter 8. And if you notice at the end of section 3, it should say 7 and 8 there. Um, so that's the first half of the book, chapters 1 to 8, or from chapter 1 to 6. And then it's 7 to 14, or it's 9 to 14. Now, I'm putting, I'm kind of breaking them apart just a little bit. Uh, certainly, section one and section two uh, go hand in hand with one another. And section three is actually these two sermons in the middle that kind of uh, break the book in half. So you have one through six, then you have these two sermons on seven and eight that, that have references to fasting. Then you have nine to 14, which is the last section. But as you can see, I've, got, I've just simplified it in my mind into four simple sections. So the first thing we note is section one, a searching sermon. Much like Haggai, he begins with a sermon that comes to their heart to call them to repent. Notice with me chapter one, beginning at verse two. Yahweh was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus says Yahweh of hosts, return to me. There's a description of repentance declares Yahweh of hosts, that I may return to you. 
as James would say, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. This is, the, this is the picture. You repent and you return to me in faith. You come to me and I will draw near to you. I will return to you. Verse 4, do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets proclaimed saying, this is what the former prophets said to their fathers, thus says Yahweh of hosts, return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. He's explaining, this is what I mean by return. Turn from your evil ways to follow after me, just like the former prophets said to your fathers. Your fathers, and he says, and he says, but they did not listen or give heed to me, declares Yahweh. Your fathers, where are they? The prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they repented and said, as Yahweh lives as, excuse me, as Yahweh of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he dealt with us. So he says, listen, they didn't, the prophets came to them and told them to repent. And what did they do? They didn't listen. And now what are they saying as they're sitting there in captivity? We thought we knew better than God, but his words overtook us. Just what he said would happen, did happen. And now we find ourselves sitting by the river Kibar in, in Assyria or in Babylon. Now we're out in captivity, just like the prophets of God had said. The lesson from history is, from Zechariah to his contemporaries, don't be like your fathers. Just like my dad used to say to me, don't be like your older brother. Did you see what he did? Don't do that. We should learn. Learn from the past. And listen to God's word. God's word is permanent. God's word will come true. It is sure. It is, is certain. And that's the point of that first message. Zechariah starts off by saying, you need to repent. Just like Haggai had told them, they need to repent of their worldliness and go back to the work. He begins with this call to repentance. And he says, listen to my words. That brings us to the second section, which is really, in one sense, the, the fascinating section of the book, and yet also one of the most challenging sections of the book. Three months later now, he comes with this eight-night visions, visions which he saw in one night. And these eight visions that, that came upon one another, they build on one another. And it's very possible that there's a number of ways, that, different ways, she would say, let me step back. There are a number of different ways that men describe how these all fit together. And, and, and I would say that they just they build one on top of the other, and they reach a climax of some sense in chapter, in chapter 3 with vision 4, where we come to Joshua, the high priest. And then we're going to come back to Joshua, the high priest, at the end of the eighth, the, after the eighth vision, with a description of a coronation ceremony, including Joshua, the high priest. And so there's a, there's a path up, as it were, to Joshua. And we'll see why that is in just a minute. So let's look at vision number one. Vision number one is, came in the 24th day of the 11th month. And it came to Zechariah. And it says in, in chapter 1 and verse 8, I saw at night and behold, 
A man was riding on a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees which were in the ravine with red, sorrel, and white horses behind him. Then I said, My Lord, what are these? And the angel who was speaking with me said to me, I will show you what these are. And the man who was riding among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are those whom Yahweh has sent to patrol the earth. So they answered the angel of Yahweh who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. And so what does he see? He sees a reconnaissance mission. He's a heavenly reconnaissance mentioned. It's being led by the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, and probably again a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here we have the angel of the Lord, these four horsemen uh, that, that are being sent out and they come back and report to the angel of the Lord. They've gone out into the ends of the earth and everything is peaceful. All is quiet among the nations. Well, now that's just a little bit frustrating, if you will, if you're, if you're an Israelite, because here you are, you've been in captivity for 70 years, you've just come back from captivity, you're in the land, you're still under the thumb of Darius, you're working on his behalf, not an independent nation, and yet all these nations are at peace. All these nations seem to be at rest. And he goes on to explain. He says, well, let me just give you some more information. And so this is what happens in many of the cases. If you look at your outline, there's, there's a vision and then there's some sort of explanation or declaration or summons. There's a, there's a, a prose section, if you will, that, that gives us more information on this particular topic. And in this particular case, we read in, in verses 12 to 17 about God's intention for Jerusalem. God's intentions for good. The angel of, the Lord, of Yahweh speaks to Yahweh and says, what are, you, are, are you still angry? But then we have this comforting answer. Notice verses 14 and 15. So the angel who was speaking with me said to me, proclaim, saying, thus says Yahweh of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. But I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. For, I, for while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. What's his point? His point is, it doesn't, may not look like you're actually special to me, but you are. He has a special, zealous, jealous love for his people. And though the, the nations are at ease, he says, I am very angry with them for the way that they have manifested their sinful desires and their sinful desire to, to, to conquer the world and to conquer God's people in particular. And then we have this little phrase in verse 16, which ties in with Haggai and which we'll see coming out again and again in the book of Zechariah. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, I will return. What, what an amazing statement. It, Yahweh says to them, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. And then what are they doing? Right? They're building the temple. So what's he tell them? Let's keep reminding ourselves. He's talking to people who are supposed to be building. He says, my house will be built in it. That is in Jerusalem. And a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. He says, I'm going to have to measure just how big this place is. And he says in verse 17, again, proclaim saying, thus says Yahweh of hosts, my cities will again overflow with prosperity and Yahweh will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Do you see how he's encouraging them? Get to work. Keep going at it. 
God hasn't given up on you. He's still jealous towards you. He's going to deal with the nations. He's angry with them. Know that you are in the heart of God. Then we come to vision 2 in, in chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. And again, notice it's what he sees, and that's in all these visions. Then I lifted up my eyes and saw, and he saw four horns, and these four horns, he said, what are these? And well, the four horns are those which scattered Israel. And there are numerous ways to understand these four horns. Two which make some sense to me, and that is one of them is that the four empires mentioned in Daniel chapter 7. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And that could very well be who these four horns are. Again, it could be that it's the four directions in every direction. He talks later about the, the wind from the four corners of the earth. Could he just be saying that's from the four corners they've come and they've attacked and they've, they've conquered and they've, and they've uh, troubled the people of, people of God. They've scattered the people of God to the four winds, to the four corners. But then God goes on to say in this particular one that these enemies are going to be judged because he's going to raise up four terrifying craftsmen. And nobody, a lot of the commentators just skipped over that. I don't even, they just like, we don't know who the four craftsmen are. Are they four kings, four, four people? Are they four, you know, who's going to do this? But there's going to be four people, four craftsmen, I won't say people, four craftsmen in the image that are going to come along and they'll deal with them. So basically, at every point where there's been an oppressor and a scatterer, there will be somebody who will be a deliverer. It might be the same person, maybe speaking of, of, the, of the Messiah. And I just point out at this point in time in the book of Zechariah, and again, this comes out over and over in the reading that I've done, Many of the details in Zechariah are very, very difficult to identify. But the message, the big message, the general message is patent. We, generally, we often get, we're often given the general message. So let's come away. I'm going to spend a lot of time just coming away with the general message and not get into, into too many of the weeds because we could spend a lot of time uh, going through the weeds. But at this point he says... Those ones that are at peace, that scattered you, I'm going to deal with them. They will be judged. They will be terrified. They will be thrown down. Vision 3, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, heavenly encouragement. For here we come now to the city with walls of fire. And so we come to chapter 2, and we have a city with walls of fire. And this city is Jerusalem, and this man is sent out, and he's going to measure Jerusalem. And the question is, okay, what does that mean? Well, it's going to be inhabited without walls, verse 4, a multitude of men and cattle within it. But verse 5, I, for I, declares Yahweh, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. And there's the measure of encouragement right there. Keep building this temple where the place of God's special dwelling. And remember, he manifested that by his Shekinah glory. And one commentator said this wall of fire could very well be the Shekinah glory will take in the whole people of God. It won't be just in the temple anymore. But all of God's people will be there. But certainly a wall of fire is a great wall to protect God's people. It's a great, great way to purify those who come in to be part of God's people. But here he is, there's walls of fire in this Jerusalem. And so the message then comes to Zechariah 
in, in, in verse 6, Ho there, flee, flee from the land of the north. He says, so here's the point. I'm going to have this great big city for all of my people to dwell in, and God himself will be a fiery wall around them and be their glory. Come back. Remember, there was just a small group who came back. And so the word comes to them saying, come back. Come back from the north where you've been dispersed. Escape and return from Babylon. The plunder that those nations who plundered you will be your plunder. But then notice verse 10. Here's Here's the encouragement in the midst of this. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming. I will dwell in your midst, declares Yahweh. He's, he, he, remind, he reminds them that here is God's disposition toward them is, is one of, of love. They, they are the apple of his eye, verse 8. And his promised presence is given to them again at the end of verse 11. I will dwell in your midst and you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you. God's presence. And yet, and yet there's, there's another statement here which we ought to as Gentiles get really excited about. Because he says at the beginning of verse 11, many nations will join themselves to Yahweh in that day and will become my people. This is not just this rest, restored Jerusalem in which God's glory fills the whole place and God's his, the protector of the whole place. It's going to be multinational, multi-ethnic, and not just Jewish. They'll be true Jews, but they'll be from all different nations. And this is really a picture of a victorious city that was seeking to be destroyed by the enemies, but God, God, God sets his, his people in place and promises to protect them. And so there's that divine summons that comes and of them come back. That brings us to vision four, chapter three. So we've seen vision one, a heavenly reconnaissance. Vision two, a heavenly judgment. Judgment upon the people by the horns. Judgment of the horns by the craftsmen. Vision number three, a heavenly encouragement. A victorious city with walls of fire. Huge and filled with a multitude of people. God himself dwelling there. And then vision four, the heavenly mediator. Vision four, the heavenly mediator. And this is by far probably the one that's most frequently referred to. We find ourselves in the court of heaven. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of Yahweh and Satan standing at the right hand to accuse him, the accuser of the brethren. Yahweh said to Satan, Yahweh rebuke you. Satan, not rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, Yahweh has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? How many times have you heard that for somebody who was, who was saved? Right, a brand plucked from the fire. Joshua is one who was plucked from the fire. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy rags and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity from you and will clothe you with festal robes. And so we have this heavenly mediator, that is really um, Joshua, who is the high priest, has his sins taken away, his filthy garments which have polluted him, which would keep him not only from the presence of God, but would keep him from serving as a priest, as a mediator between God and the people. 
So there was no mediator. So how is it that if you deliver us, we're ever going to be able to come back into your presence if there isn't one to stand, a priest to stand between us and God? He said, well, here's a priest, Joshua. I'm going to reestablish him. He's going to have a divine commissioning in verses 8 through 10. He, he recommissions him to stand before God, cleans him up, purifies him, gives him these priestly garments. And as Calvin says, the vision was given to the prophet for two reasons. That the faithful might know that their contest was with Satan, their spiritual enemy, rather than with any particular nation. And also that they might understand that a remedy was at hand. For God stood in defense of the priesthood which he had instituted. God then, in the first place, proposed to remind the faithful that they had to carry on war, not with flesh and blood, but with the devil himself. This is one thing. And then his design was to recall them to himself, that they might consider what he would be, that he, excuse me, that, that he would be their sure deliverer from all dangers. The fact of the matter is, he says, I can clean up your priest, I can clean up you. And the picture is often taken to be being clothed with the, with the righteousness of Christ, as one who can then stand before God, and there is no condemnation, there is no uh, accusation that can come against the one who stands in the presence of God, whom God has cleaned up. But then he goes on in verses 8 through 10 to talk in chapter 3 to talk about a priesthood that's going to be established. It's not just the high priest that's now cleaned up as an example of one who can approach God and be a mediator between God and man. But he's also then going to be a whole, uh, a, I'm going to say, the priesthood of the believers uh, around this one who is called the branch. In verse 8, I'm going to bring my servant the branch. So it's around the, the, a picture of the Messiah who's going to be the one who stands in the midst of the, the people of God. Excuse me, the midst of the priests. We come to the vision five, the superabounding supply. This, this is probably by far the chapter four, uh, the most challenging uh, of the visions to try to figure out all the different pieces and many different ones have come up with many good and, and wise and what would sound like very sound interpretations. But they, there are many sound interpretations of this particular vision. So here is these, this candelabra with, with uh, 49 lamps and it's got a big bowl above it and it's fed into the, the oil is fed directly from two branches, from two trees feeding into this, uh, this, 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 this lighting apparatus that allows for light to, be, to shine forth. And, and so all of this is for Zerubbabel. All of this is given to encourage Zerubbabel to do his work. Notice with me verse 7 of chapter 4. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. And then in verse 8, Also the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, verse 9, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you. So Zerubbabel, you're going to finish the work. There's an encouragement. They've just placed this foundation. They've got some, maybe some little bit of walls up. And he says, wait a minute. You're actually going to finish this work. So press on. Keep working. Verse 10, he says again to Zerubbabel, For who, for who has despised the day of small things? 
But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. When they see that, that plumb line hanging down there for the walls to go up. These are the eyes of Yahweh which range to and fro throughout the earth. Zerubbabel is going to complete his work. He will do it by the grace of God, as we read. Grace, grace to it. It's not because he's great, not because he's a great mason, not because he's a great leader, but because of the grace of God. And it's the giving of the Spirit in, in, verse, in verse 7. Excuse me, verse 6. This is the word of Yahweh to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by my power, but by my Spirit, says Yahweh of hosts. So being empowered by the Spirit, being enabled by God's grace, Zerubbabel will finish his work. He will, he will lay the capstone on the, on, the, on the final wall, and the temple will be completed. This is really given. It's, it's obvious, isn't it? What, I mean, this also, we can say, okay, what are the two trees? What are the two branches? What are the seven, uh, uh, the 49 lamps? What's the, is this the menorah? Isn't it the menorah? Is there, is there reference to religious worship? Isn't there? That, okay, let's, let's just set all those aside for a moment. What's the obvious lesson? Zerubbabel can do the work that God has called him to do. Why? Because of the Spirit of God and the supply of God's grace. Doesn't that sound a lot like New Testament stuff to you? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Or the verse I, I keep quoting over and over and over again, two verses in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9 for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And then flip the numbers around, 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you have an abundance for every good work. Now that sounds like a, 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 a lampstand with ever-flowing oil to just keep it burning. And never, never to be exhausted. That's the point for Zerubbabel. You have all that you need, all the grace that you need, the Spirit of God dwelling within you. And then there's this scroll in the, in the sixth vision in, 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 in chapter 5. And it's an effective judgment. It's a scroll that has a curse written on it. And those who on one side steal and the other who, who uh, uh, blaspheme God or, 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 or speak. Oh, let's find that. Let me read the words. What do you see? I see a flying scroll, length of 20 cubits, width 10 cubits. Then he said, this is the curse that is going forth over the face of the whole land. Surely everyone who steals will be purged away according to the writing on the one side, and everyone who swears will be purged away according to the writing of the other side. That is, falsely swears. And so this takes the whole 10 commandments and it picks two of them and says, those who violate God's law will suffer the curse and they'll be dealt with. And I believe that the, the, the one explanation of this that made the most sense to me is this is actually an encouragement. I think, well, that's not an encouragement. But it says that the scroll will come and abide in the house and it will consume the house of those who are, who are thieves and those who are false swearers. Those who break the third commandment and those who break the uh, sixth commandment or eighth commandment. Yeah, eighth commandment. Right, so this is, this is, this is what, 
this is what's going to happen. He says they'll be dealt with. That's really what the, the captivity was all about. It was, to try to, it was to purge out the sin from the people. And the next one takes it a step further because now we see this woman who's called wickedness and she's in a basket. And he opens the basket and sees her and then he throws the lid back on the basket. He keeps the lid on the basket and he takes it away. What's he done? He's just removed wickedness from the people. He says there's a time coming in which the curse will be fully completed, fully satisfied, and God will come and he will remove all wickedness from you. And this sounds a lot like, to me, Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2. Comfort, O comfort my people, says God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has, that she has received of Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. Or as we saw in, in Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Or Romans 8 and verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the curse has been satisfied. Galatians 3 and verse 13, he made him a curse for us when he hung, hung upon the tree. So God says, I am going to accomplish my purposes of really taking care of the sins of God's people. I am going to deliver the, them. The curse is going to be satisfied. The curse is going to be taken away. It's going to do its work. It's going to be done. And wickedness will be removed from among God's people. And then the vision, the eighth vision is the four chariots. We come back where we started. And here we see, again, God in providence sending them out. But this time, they're not just doing reconnaissance, but they're actually accomplishing his purposes. They're going forth to uh, fulfill his word in judgment upon the various nations. But now notice with me at the end of, of chapter 8, excuse me, the end of chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. Because here's the capstone of this second half of the visions. Remember, all these happened in one night. I don't know how many of you remember flip, flip books. Do you remember those? You take the pages and go, and you watch the picture move, right? That's kind of what these visions are like. We're to see this, we're to see this activity of God's heart and his activity for his people, dealing with their sins, separating them from, or dealing with their, with their enemies, and then coming to the end where he says, and you're going to have a new king. You're going to have a high priest, and you're going to have a new king. Joshua's the high priest. Who's going to be the new king? Verse, verse 9 of chapter 6. The word of, the, of Yahweh came to me saying, take an offering from the exiles, from Heldai, Tobijah, and Judea. And you go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, where they, were, where they arrived from Babylon. Take silver and gold, make an ornament crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, thus says Yahweh of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch. Well, we saw that before. Who was he in the, in the last reference? He was the high priest. Here this one is Branch is going to be wearing the crown, for he will branch out from, there, from where he is, and he will build the temple of Yahweh. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of Yahweh, and he will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne 
and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Now the crown will become a reminder in the temple of, of Yahweh to Helam, Tobijah, and Judea, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. Those who are far off will come and build the temple of Yahweh. Then you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you, and it will take place if you completely obey Yahweh your God. Well, I didn't think I'd get through this today, but I thought I'd get a little further than just the visions. Now, I have, I have scanned, literally scanned for you, these eight visions. And as we've come through them, what have we seen? We've seen that no matter how much we can't make sense of our particular circumstances... It seems like we're so small, our work is so limited, and the nations are, are ruling everything and enjoying peace and have all this, this prosperity. This doesn't seem right. Sounds a little bit like Psalm 73. But what is it that, that God gives through his prophets to encourage the people of God in the midst of their smallness, in the midst of their work of building a temple where God could dwell? What does he give to encourage them? I will come to you. I will be in your midst. I will be your glory. Not your numbers. Not your brilliance. My presence. And that is to rejoice our hearts. Does that rejoice your hearts, brethren? Just to say, I have God with me. As the psalmist said in Psalm 73, the nearness of God is my good, is the way the New American Standard translates that. The nearness of God is my good. Is that your greatest good? If it is, then what should you do? Well, we're going to come to this, but he's, I'll, give you, I'll give you a preview. Then work! Work for the glory of God and His church. Work for the building of the temple of God through the proclamation of the gospel, through the, the maintaining of religious worship that is pleasing unto Him. Do the work He has called you to do. Why? Because He'll deal with the nations. Oh, they may be oppressing you now, and they may be doing all kinds of things to hinder you from being all that you would like to be for God. But God will deal with them. He will send craftsmen, either in this life or on the final day, to deal with them. We're part of something bigger. In a sense, we're part of something that's even better. Because God is the one who is, a, is, is, the, one who is the walls, if you will, around us to protect us, the wall of fire to protect us, to purify those who come in. His disposition is he is jealous for us. As Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 11, he is, he's jealous for us. He loves us. And this multinational people will be his people. And we have a mediator. We have a high priest. The Jews must have been absolutely horrified to think that there's, the high priest is defiled. We can't have the Day of Atonement with a high priest who's defiled. We can't draw near to God. If the high priest is defiled and he can't draw near to God, how am I going to draw near to God? And God says, don't worry about that. I can take care of his sin. And he cleanses him and he shows him, I'll put a clean garment on him. I'll put a turban on his head. He'll be holy unto me. There is a high priest to stand between us and God. And that high priest then enables us to come into the presence of God where we can be cleaned up and our sins can be forgiven. And there's all the grace that we need to accomplish the task that he's given us. 
And the Spirit of God dwells within you. You say, you know, have you ever, have you ever said, I know you have because some of you sat in my study and said this, I can't do it. Well, there's a sense in which you're right. You can't. <laughs> because it's not by might nor by power, but you've got the Spirit of God in you. The Spirit of the living God dwells in each and every one of us who are His children. We have all that we need to be the Christians we are supposed to be. To serve the Lord the way we are supposed to serve Him. We have all that we need to serve Him in the workplace as a testimony. To serve Him for His glory in our homes. In training up our children. In loving our spouses. In dealing with problems within the church and getting along with the brethren. We have all that we need to do the work that God has called us to do. And we can worship Him in greatness and in glory, even in this place. Not because we have the right hymnal, whether it's the blue one or the red one. And not because we're using the right translation that was somehow authorized by God somewhere along the line but because we have the Spirit of God in our midst that Christ has promised that if we ask, He will send. And so we can worship Him aright, and we can come through the High Priest, Jesus Christ, so that our sacrifices are acceptable to Him through our High Priest. The curse will accomplish its purposes, but that curse on our behalf has already been taken by another. And wickedness is being purged, and a day is coming when wickedness will be taken away. And there is a day coming in which everything will be summed up in Christ. Brethren, this is something to encourage us in our work. Our work for the kingdom. And so I ask you, are you seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Are you listening to the word of God? We're going to come back to this because that was the problem in the first sermon. They wouldn't listen to the word that was preached to them. They wouldn't repent, and they wouldn't come to God. We need to hear his word. We need to repent when our sins are exposed, and we need to come to Jesus Christ. May God help us to do the work he's called us to do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, be gracious uh, to help us to rightly understand your word and to apply it and be able to serve you faithfully. Be with us in this next hour when we gather for worship, that our hearts would be fixed upon the one who is to be lifted up in our midst, that all glory would go to Jesus Christ, that all eyes would be fixed upon him, that you would help our servant, Pastor Chansky, as he proclaims your word, that his whole being would be given to honoring and glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ through the expounding of that word. Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us the spirit of grace and supplication. Give us the ability to obey. And we ask that you would do this and honor your name in Jesus Christ. Amen.